it's, it's exciting. I, I really believe we are in exciting times uh, to be a part of building the local church. Um, I, my, my passion and my belief in the local church is stronger than ever. Um, obviously, collectively, around our nation, the value of local church ministry is under attack. Um, if you search a lot of news articles around church, how many of you know they're not telling the positive stories? Right, they're not talking about how Christians stepped up in the wake of the hurricane and sent all types of organizations and people and resources. They're not going to talk about what we do to love our neighbor. They're not going to tell our good stories. They're not going to tell our healthy ones. They're going to talk about prominent pastors who fail. They're going to talk about a few of cases uh, of hurt and, and, and damage, and they're going to push those and push those and push those. But the reality is what I'm seeing all around the country as I travel and talk to pastors all around the nation is churches just like ours, faithfully, consistently, day in and day out, loving God and loving people. And when we do that, impact is a result. And I am believing that now is the time to step up and to be a builder. If you missed last week, we launched this series called Builders, and my request was to shift from a bystander mentality to a builder mentality, to actually join the crew of workers, to say, hey, I'm, I'm in. I, I'm done consuming only, and I want to contribute. I, I want to use my skills, my talents, my abilities to build the house of God. Come on, do you know that you have a part to play? You have a role. You have something to give. I am a firm believer that every human fits within the body of Christ. And sometimes, unfortunately, we don't take the time to ask that question of where do I fit? What does that look? Or we try something and it doesn't go well and so we give up. And today I want to begin um, sort of, we had an intro to the message, but we're going to begin week by week diving into something that is new for our church, but is something that has been in the works for uh, really since uh, my wife and I uh, arrived here in Blaine and ever since we relaunched as Artisan Church. And one of the things that we wanted to develop right out of the gate were house values. What are the values of this house? What do we value? And we got advised, and this was phenomenal advice from people way wiser and more experienced than us. Again, um, I just love to share it. Hey, we've got so many wise Counsel, so many wise counselors speaking into this house, people who have gone before, who've run the race well. Uh, Renee and I, we, we are constantly seeking out mentorship and all that. And one of those conversations, they said, hey, you could just, you and your wife, sit down in a room and try to figure out values of a local church. But a local church is not a building, it's a people. And so until the people have really formed and you really started doing things, you, you might not actually, uh, you might guess at what the values are going to be, but then you may adjust later and said, let it take some shape, let it grow, let it happen organically and see what values come out of it. And so we had some that we were sort of behind the scenes driving and carrying, and then others started to get added. And this, uh, earlier this year, we got together with our whole staff and we went on a retreat, a workaway, where we said, we're going to really hammer down these values. And so on a whiteboard, we started throwing up just hundreds of words. I mean, it was crazy. This looked like it was just glorious craziness. And uh, and, and this, I love creative brain, brainstorm sessions. You just, anything goes. Put a word up there. What, what do we care about? What do we like? And um, I have seen organizations that will have like well over 20 values because any word that sounds good, they're like, yeah, we value that. Um, the problem is that doesn't really help having 20 because no one can remember them, right? There's way too many. And so we actually put the target out of saying we're going to try to hone this 
into five. What are five um, macro words that all of the micro words that we believe in can fit under? What are the major themes? And the reality is, um, every single one of you, as we go through these five over the next five weeks, you could be like, yeah, but what about this? And, and almost anything you might say that's important in Scripture could fit into one of these five. But at the same time, let me just be honest, one church can't value everything, right? We actually are a church that believes in other churches. Do you know this? Like, we love the church down the road. All of them. Hey, are they preaching the name of Jesus? You will never hear me slander that pastor. You will never hear us slander what they're doing and how they're building and how they're going about it. We champion local churches. I don't know if you know this, but even I've counted um, five churches in Blaine that have closed this year. That is not a celebratory fact. I'm not the pastor who's going, ooh, maybe we'll get some transfer growth. That's a devastating reality. Blaine needs a lot more churches, not less churches, Okay. A lot more churches. We are a growing community. We believe in pastors. We believe in churches that preach the whole gospel message of Jesus. And so for us, we, we know that there are going to be some churches that may have some other values that are also biblical. But we're saying, hey, this is where we're going to focus right now in the season. And, and here's the cool thing about values, too. Um, we've already established the core convictions of the house. We worked really, really hard on this. Our beliefs what are the five major convictions, the five major beliefs of our doctrine that are going to drive us forward? And we partnered with even the denomination of the Assemblies of God to understand that better. We worked really, really hard. The elder board took a long time developing that. It's been on the website. We, we voted on it in our bylaws. We voted it into our bylaws saying, hey, these are these core beliefs. Those don't change, right? But values can be adjusted in different seasons of the church. But a core conviction says, hey, this does not change. And so let me um, help us understand this. At Artisan, our core convictions, our core beliefs, th they do. They determine what we believe. And our values, though, help to determine where we're going. You hear me? So core convictions are what we believe. Remember we talked about that, what we believe around Jesus and his gospel. So what we believe around Jesus, that's the foundation. The same foundation that Paul set for his local church, we set for ours. The same that the early church had, we have the same foundation. But now on that foundation, Paul says, you get to make some choices. You get to make some decisions. How are you going to build? What is it going to look like? And the values are where we start to decide, here's how we're going to go about building this. Here's how we're going to do it. And so values, they are not just cool declarations. They are directions. So they're not just catchy words that we throw up on banners, and we're going to do it. We're totally going to do it in this terrible, long, mile-long cement hallway over here that's creepy, right? We're going we're gonna to liven it up a little bit. Maybe we put some values on the wall, but how many of you know it's a gross injustice to our church if our values just become a catchphrase on a wall, but we forget about it over time? They're not just declarations. They are directional. They help us give answers to why we do what we do and how we go about doing it. And again, there's so much good that our church can do, but we have to ask the question, what is God asking us to do? Because you might say, Pastor Sam, why are we caring so much about the 42%? Like, come on, what about this? I've got this other missions project in this other country, and, and they're a mostly Christian nation, but they have this big need. And I'm saying, hey, right now, we feel led, and the board of advisors, we feel led that right now we're going to focus more of our energy, not all of it, on the unreached. We really feel God leading us to do this. And, and so that's going to be a, a value of ours is our missions is going to aim that way. There's going to be lots of other missional work we do, but we're going to target that. 
We, we want to help that, that unequal distribution, right? And our value, our values help to determine those types of things. Are you with me? Do you understand me? And so, but here's the tension. The tension in, especially in America, and I have felt this my whole time in ministry, building local church, is the tension between goals and values. Goals and values. Goals are not evil, not even close to evil. They're actually incredibly valuable when they're put in the right place. See, the problem is, is that very often we will set a goal, and then the goal becomes the main thing, and so we will adjust our values in order to accomplish the goal for fear of failing. See, when the goal becomes the priority and growth becomes the objective, it's grow at all costs. And if we hurt some people, we hurt some people. If we adjust our values, that's okay. We just got to make it. We got to keep going. We just got to keep grinding at that goal, that number that we put out there. Rather than saying, what is it that we value? And out of those values birth some really healthy goals. And if we stay true to that value, we believe that that value will lead to that goal of an objective. Let me illustrate it really simply. Like this year in my own life, right, I set goals at the beginning of the year. I am a goal setter. I like them. I like goals when they come from my values. But some of it, one of my values in life is to have fun every day. That is actually a value, a core value of who Sam Grosso is. If I go a day without having fun, I'm a mess. I'm like, this is, the world is terrible. Everything's the worst. I just can't stand my life. It's just awful. I just question everything. I'm like, there's no fun. There's no fun at all. Like, I have to have fun. If I don't have fun, right, it's just, I, I just dry up. I just dry up. I hate it. I hate not having fun. And so I don't have to have fun all day. I just need to have fun at least for a moment every day. I work to have fun. So some of my goals were fun stuff. That's okay. Like, right? I want to laugh. And so one of my goals was something I thought would be really, really fun would be to golf 18 holes out of state. I had never golfed outside of the state of Minnesota. Even when I lived in Oklahoma for three years, everyone's like, oh, in a warmer place, I bet they golf a lot. Nobody golfed. It was way too hot all the time. You're just sweating. You want dead grass and just sweat the whole time? Not an enjoyable experience. Not a big golf community. So when I came back to Minnesota, I started golfing again. And I set this goal, I would like to golf out of state. But how many of you know that, at least for me, you know, I'm, I'm on a pastor's salary, and, and we had a family vacation, and we were out of state. I'm not going to golf on family vacation. Why? Because my value of my family trumps my goal to golf, right? Or if I don't have the finances to go, I had a friend invite me on this big golf weekend, and, and it wasn't in the budget. Now, could I have really stretched and hurt other parts and not had my kids play sports and not had them had new clothes for the fall. Totally. <laughs> I could have done it. I could have re, I had the money. I just would have had to reallocate it away from our values. I'll be, let me be a little less generous to the church this month. Let me just shift some things so I can go golf this weekend with my friends down in Texas. Okay, no, I'm not going to do that. But the cool thing is that God ended up, sometimes I put those down and I'm like, God, I actually believe you care about this and you care that I care. And guess what? This week, we were down in Florida, and we didn't think we were going to be able to golf at this missions organization, but all of a sudden, there's all this time, and it lined up, and guess what I got to do this week? I got to golf in Florida, and it was cheap, and it was affordable, and I was able to make it work, and I didn't have to stretch, and I didn't have to stretch my values in order to accomplish my goal. Come on, and there was a gator, like, I don't know, like 10 feet from me. <laughs> it was like crazy. There's just gators. They need to put up signs. They, like literally, when Minnesotans walk in, or Midwesterners, they'd be like, hey, let me tell you, 
I know that you guys love to collect balls in all the river and all this stuff. You like to collect all the golf balls you can. Don't go near it. Because on the first hole, I'm like, did you see? Ben Bolin was with me, and I was like, Ben, did you see all the golf balls down in that river? Like, if I go down there, I mean, there's Titleist Pro V1s down there. Like, we could get hundreds of dollars of golf balls. And on the next hole, I realized why nobody goes for those balls. It's like, hey, do I want the golf ball or do I want my hand? You know what I mean? Like, it's not an equal trade. Leave the golf balls. In Minnesota, we pick it clean. You know what I mean? We're, we're just hunters, and, uh, and we're a little more budget conscientious up here. Come on. <laughs> but it was awesome. It was awesome. I got to experience that goal. But how many of you know all of those other opportunities that came, I would have had to compromise a value in order to make a goal. And anytime we do that, I firmly believe it's a mistake. It's a mistake. And yet so often it begins to creep in where that goal begins to trump the value, and we live in this tension. So both in our lives, in our families, in our budgets, in everything. This is actually, do you know, like, we'll, we'll get to this more in this series, but, like, this is why I really believe it, actually, the, the, the principle of tithing, where you say, hey, I'm actually going to value generosity first. What it's saying is, hey, the first place I'm going to give, first thing I'm going to do with my money is be generous with it. That's the principle that's so important, is that I have a value. Before I set goals with my money, I'm going to have the value of generosity. So the first thing I'm going to do with money that comes in is I'm going to be generous first and give back to God. And so it's saying, hey, actually, goals are great, but not when they compromise my values. It's never grow at all costs. It's get healthy at all costs. We have to get healthy. And if health is the target, growth will be a byproduct. It will. It will. And we have so many business leaders in this church even, entrepreneurs who know that, hey, their business has been growing and doing well this year. And they're saying, hey, I know it because I put my priorities first. I've got my values set. And because I'm, this is a value-based business, not a goal-based business, God's doing something amazing in it. And so today we're going to talk about our first value. And again, values do not determine necessarily, we're not focusing all of our energy and attention on what we build to put what we build simply as a local church, churches are designed to build people, if you didn't know. We build humans. We don't build buildings. We, that may be a part of building humans. The, the value is we are people first. We are discipleship first. We are supposed to reach the lost and disciple the found. That's been the game. That's been what the local church has been doing for thousands of years. It is our focus. But what we build, this series is to focus, focus more on how we are going to build it. How are we going to reach people? How are we going to evangelize the lost and develop and disciple the found? And so today we're going to talk about our first value. And um, none of the values have uh, like an order of value within the values. But this one I wanted to start with very intentionally um, because I really believe that it's essential. It's so essential and it needs to be so ingrained in the heartbeat of our church as we continue to build and move forward. Remember last week I talked about uh, the, the, the blueprints and and a house that uh, the framing's up. I really believe the artisan church, the frame has started to take shape. Starts to look like a church, starts to feel like a church, but there's so much more work. We got sheetrock to do, we got shingles, we got siding, we got windows, we got plumbing, we got electric, we got all the utilities, we got a kitchen to make. There's so many aspects. And um, as we look at that, one of those aspects is we have to get really, really good at practicing the value of outreach, of outreach. See, what happens is when you're building something, it's very easy to get super consumed on the one thing you're doing. And often what happens is churches can, uh, as they build and as they grow and as they add different rooms and things like that, it can get really, really comfortable. 
and all of a sudden we can stop thinking with an outreach mentality. And at Artisan Church, we are never going to lay down our outreach. Because at the, I really, again, I've used this illustration before, but I just, I think water is a great illustration of the local church, right? When the water, we're supposed to bring streams of living water, and yet sometimes what happens is when we get completely consumed with what's happening on the inside, how many of you know the water stops moving? And how many of you saw like a nasty pond this summer when we were in the drought, right? What happens? All kinds of gross things start growing. It gets stale. It gets unhealthy. If people then come and drink from that water, what's going to happen? We're going to get hurt. We're going to get sick. But when we're streams of living water, we're fresh. It's bubbling over. It's new. It's for everybody. It's, it's all inclusive. We're saying, hey, open the doors. we got to reach people. How are we going to reach people? So we have this value of outreach. And as we dive into what this is going to look like, let me, uh, let me read first. Um, let's, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Love the gospel of Mark. And we're going to read a very famous story here. It's outlined in multiple Gospels, and we're, but, but it's so important. Now, we're going to read about the, the feeding of the 5,000, but I'm not going to focus on the miracle. I want us to look. How many of you have heard about the feeding of the 5,000? You've heard this story before. You've heard this story. Even if I think even if you didn't grow up in church, it's one of the more famous that Jesus took some uh, loaves of bread and some fish, and he just kept dividing it, and there was enough to feed 5,000 people, and they actually believed that they were only counting men. Could have been upwards of 18,000 people in the crowd, fed everybody plus leftovers. This incredible miracle, super famous miracle, and it's an incredible moment of outreach. But I want us to look, because I actually believe there's some lessons we can learn on what effective outreach looks like according to what Jesus and his ministry were doing. One thing that I think we forget is that Jesus was not just, uh, he wasn't just building his platform. He was building a whole ministry. He had people that were essentially on staff in a discipleship setting, right? And you're like, he was raising money. Oh, Jesus didn't need money. Then why do you have a treasurer? You know, like there was money. Like he was moving. He had a ministry. He had a ministry. And so how his ministry chose to handle this moment of outreach is really going to teach us something of value today. So we're going to start in verse 30. And let me backfill. Just before this, Jesus had sent out his disciples in two. And they had been going around and they'd been ministering and casting out demons and healing the sick and, and evangelizing and doing outreach. They'd just been doing outreach, 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 outreach. And some of it was effective, some of it wasn't. By the way, I really believe this, that some of you may cringe at the word outreach because you've done it and failed. But Jesus was not thrown off by the disciples' failures. He actually said, hey, just, just wipe the dust off your feet. AKA, just let it go. You're not a failure because that evangelism effort failed. That person's heart was not ready to receive. So actually, just, just, it's not on you. It's not on you. Don't carry that. What he was saying is don't carry the failures of outreach because outreach is really, really hard. And so uh, they're coming back from this. And also, we know as, if we, as we take all the gospel accounts that this is right on the heels of Jesus discovering that John the Baptist, his cousin, had been murdered and beheaded by the king. Somebody that was a close relationship who baptized him in the Jordan River had just been killed. So Jesus is in a place of grief, and his disciples are coming back from extreme missions mentality type of outreach happening. Here in verse 30, it says that apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. And all the introverts said, amen. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Let's get off to a quiet place and rest a while. That sounds really, really nice. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles 
They didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do not forget. Jesus' heart, he loves this room of the people in this room that are saved. His heart, though, are, is, are the ones that maybe you walked in and you're far from Christ. And you're struggling with Christ. Actually, his focus, his heart, his love is on you. His focus is on the people who didn't even have what it took to get to church today. Who, who feel condemned and who are lost. He, his heart are for those without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. Exhausted, grieving, tired. Worn out, hungry, he started to teach them many things because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, Jesus, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Please, please stop preaching. You've been preaching for so long. (laughs) Come on, like we've heard it before. Please let them go so that they can eat and we can eat. How many of you know if you want to be really spiritual, you act like you're caring about the other hungry people? But how many of you know the disciples are like, I'm starving, Jesus, please do something. I got to eat. I got to eat. I got to eat. And then Jesus said to them, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, Jesus asked. Go and find out. Go and find out. And they find a boy who has some loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus blesses it, he breaks it, and he feeds all 5,000 people. Now, in this text, we're going to discover some aspects of outreach that are still applicable to today, this Sunday morning in October of 2022. And the first thing we see is that effective outreach requires urgency. Urgency. So outreach is our value for the day. One of the first pieces that we need to understand about outreach is urgency. Urgency. What did we just read? He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. There was such an urgency to what the work they were doing that they were forgetting to eat. You ever been in the airport and you see somebody who's urgent? You ever seen this? People sprinting awkwardly. You see grown men and women just running through the the aisles of the airport. And they're not dressed for it. They're wearing a suit. They're wearing wedges. Come on, girls. I know they're called wedges. There's wedges and heels. And they're sprinting. And it's awkward, right? Why? Why are there people running through the airport? Because they're stressed. Why? Because they don't think they have any time to make their flight. There's an urgency. And then there's other people who got there way early. Woo! (laughs) They got all day. They're sitting in the mile line, long line at the coffee shop. They got no stress. They've got no urgency. They're calm, cool, and collected. Why? Because they got their hours beforehand to make sure they'd make it all the way through. You see, the reality is urgency is often dictated by how much time we think we have or the, how much time we think we don't have. So church, how much time do you think you have? How much time do we have for outreach? How much? How much? Uh, Ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us how long, but we know it's going to come suddenly. The Bible doesn't tell us how long our life is, but we know we need to be effective today. We're not promised tomorrow, but today we need to care about outreach. Actually, the Bible over and over again stresses this urgency in our spirit, and yet, what happens? We get comfortable. 
We get complacent. We get calm. Honestly, it's one of the realities that sometimes it can be of value. Do you know, like, when we're struggling, how many of you know there's an urgency to making money when your bank account's at zero? When it's really full, you lose urgency. There's an urgency to things when, when stuff gets hard. And right now I believe that the church is being pressed because God's saying, hey, I need the urgency to rise up again. You guys need to remember, there's actually somebody he. Ah, oh, man, I'm blanking his name, and so I'm going to misquote him. I heard him on a podcast uh, just recently. He used to be the head of Lifeway. And he was saying that statistically that evangelism is on a, such a steep decline in America that churches are not carrying, valuing, or putting evangelism at the forefront that he said, I'm concerned about the future of the local church in America because evangelism is not a value anymore. We just talk about big evangelists of, the, of, that, of history but we aren't championing evangelism right now. Churches are trying to just stay alive, and so they're turning inward. They're turning inward, and they're growing stagnant rather than turning outward and bringing streams of living water to the world. Effective outreach requires urgency. Urgency is not evil. Are your prayers urgent? Are your conversations urgent? Is your own growth urgent? What if there are people in your life whose very salvation rests on you, you are the one who carries the gospel message of Jesus around them. Do you have an urgency? And if you have an urgency, the other thing we see from Jesus here is that effective outreach requires compassion. No, 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 Pastor Sam, it requires judgment. I need to let people know that they are in the wrong, and I'm going to do this, and i got to let them all know. Do you know Paul actually says, hey, those outside of the faith, I don't judge them. I don't hold them to the same standard. They don't know Jesus. I have compassion on them. They're lost. They're hurting. They're struggling. They're trying to find their answers in things that will not provide. They don't know the truth. They're living a lie. Darkness has become light to them. They're struggling. So compassion rises up in my spirit. See, Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Why are we so surprised? at people who don't love Jesus acting the way they act. Why are we surprised? Did you forget what you were like before you knew Jesus? I don't. <laughs> I can't imagine where I'd be if I'd built my whole adult life apart from the message of Jesus, the freedom found in him. Why would we be surprised? We should have, there should be a deep, burning compassion to say, man, I just want to help. I just want to help. All that. You're just trying to sedate the pain, but I have something that will heal the pain. You're just trying to numb your life, but can I tell you, you can have healing, hope, compassion. We have compassion. The problem is, though, the reason so often the church, church's compassion diminishes and its judgment rises, I can judge from a distance. But compassion requires proximity. I got to get close to you. I got to care. I got to know your story. I got to get to know you. I got to hear you. I got to love you. I need to be close. Judgment, man, I get to sit behind with my gavel, right? Just picture, picture the judge high up, Judge Judy. Come on, I get to be Judge Judy behind my thing and just judge everybody. <laughs> Only like people, millennials and older laughed. All the Gen Z are like, who's Judge Judy? I don't even know who that is. Just sitting behind there with a gavel, getting to make all the decisions and everybody else is out there. We're not, we're not holding a gavel. We're not holding a gavel. We're holding the word of God. 
And we're called to have compassion. We're called to bring that into them. The problem is it's not convenient. Convenient opportunities for compassion are a rare occurrence. I tried to think of one as I was prepping for this. I was like, what's a time where it was just like so easy to have compassion and help somebody? And I was like, it's never been convenient. Not once in my life. <laughs> Every time I've had to, I've felt God compel me to, to, to love and to help and to have compassion on somebody, it's always been inconvenient. I didn't have the money at the time. I didn't have the time. I wasn't feeling it. I was tired. I was grieving. I was worn out. I'd been doing work. I'd been doing I, 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 I. All the things. My eyes just never lined up with what the moment of compassion that I feel like God is calling me to. Because the reality is, scriptures would back up the statement that compassion comes with a cost. There's a cost to your compassion. If you want to have a heart of outreach, there's going to be moments where it's highly inconvenient and even painful for you. Painful, hard, difficult. But are you called to be that builder? Are you called to be that builder? You see, effective outreach also requires builders. It requires builders. But Jesus said, you feed them with what they ask. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. You know, right there, that phrase... Jesus said, you feed them. That's a whole sermon right there. So Jesus looked at them and said, hey, you, you feed them. You see, there's a tension, even in some of the environments that I was raised in with local church, where when a need was discovered, sometimes the first reaction would be to add to the church staff. So the church was built, hey, there's a need, let's hire somebody to meet that need. And so I want to talk openly about this tension because I actually believe it's important. If you're going to call Artisan Church home and you're going to be a builder, you are going to continually be asked to feed people. You're going to continually be asked to, to serve people. Ephesians 4 makes it very, very, very clear of what my role and the role of our staff is in this church. It is not to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's it. It's so simple. It's so clear. It's not even really up for discussion. And so the problem is, what happens is sometimes there's like, hey, pastor, do you not know about this need? Do you not know about what's happening? We got we to gotta do something. Someone's got to do that. And, and, and why isn't that happening? Why aren't we making that happen? And so often the reality is it's my job to equip somebody for that. Well, like pastor Sam, you know, Pastor Sonia, she just keeps asking me to help just over and over again. She just wants to keep equipping my hands and helping me grow and develop through serving the church. It's so frustrating. She won't stop. I just want to sit and be like, hey, good job, Pastor Sonia. That's exactly her role. If you see Pastor Sonia having to do all the work, you should be like, hey, hey, how do I help? How do I help? Get ready for welcome home lunch. Is there anything you need? I can set up. I can do this. Like, what do you need? Oh, you know, Pastor Eric, you know, he's always asking me I had to come and serve the youth and come and help out with the next generation. Didn't we hire him to do it? Come on, we got a whole pastor. I heard he just went full-time. I mean, come on. He's getting full-time salary, and he can't reach the teenagers by himself. His job is not to be the only one reaching the teenagers. His job is to equip people to reach young people and to raise up people to say, hey, I have a heart to give back. Just as someone spoke into my life, I want to speak into someone else's life. You see, at Artisan, we hire people who have a heart for discipleship, development, raising up and investing and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's going to be very slow to hire at Artisan. We're not just going to immediately hire someone to meet a need. And sometimes you might hear someone say, hey, if you saw that need, could you, could you, how do I help you meet it? It's not just go and do it on your own. 
But it's, hey, how can I help you meet that need? How, how can I help you do that? You know, there's sometimes there's weeks where I can't get to all the hospital visits, and so we send an elder to do it. And an elder shows up to pray for somebody in the hospital. Oh, pastor doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't care. No, no, not at all. Actually, that's exactly how the church is supposed to go. And read about what, it, what Paul says about elders and, and them doing their ministry and them hosting and all of that. It's biblical. It's biblical. But sometimes in American culture, we've put all the weight on the church staff. And I really believe that a part that's going to be so important as we build Artisan Church is to realize that you are a builder. You are a builder. And if anything, my goal when I preach is to train you in that, is to help you understand the Word of God a little bit better and how do you apply it. Because yes, guess what? I got to spend, I think on this message, it was about 12 hours of study and work and effort trying to come up with this message, right? You don't have 12 hours for that. So yes, it's my job to do that. And, and I want to do it and I love it and, it's, and I appreciate it. But the reality is it's designed so that your life can actually be different. It's not just so you learn a little nugget and walk out the same. It's so that we get encouraged and challenged and equipped to go out and do as Jesus did. You feed them. I'm going to hit the last two really, really fast as the keys come on up. Another thing we see is that effective outreach requires resolve. Resolve. I just think about this moment where he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send them away so they can go and get something to eat. Please send them away. Give it to him. Jesus is like, hey, I've actually resolved to see a miracle happen right now. I've actually resolved to stay. I really wonder how many times do we give up just before the miracle of the breaking of bread? How many times do we give up because it gets hard, because it gets difficult, because we get hungry, because we get uncomfortable. How many times are we right on the edge like the disciples of one of the greatest miracles? And you're just like, oh, you know what, I just, I don't have the resolve to stick it out. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too hard for me to be a part of a community that doesn't just let me sit in the seat without anyone calling me higher. I just, I just want to go where I can just sit in a seat. I wonder if you had some resolve to stick it out, to build. There's a phrase that always runs through my head, and I've shared it before. One of my pastors used to speak this to me all the time. He used to say, hey, Pastor Sam, if you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. Stick it out. Don't quit when it gets hard. Don't quit when it gets difficult. Don't quit at the first rejection. Shake off the dust. Let it go. Keep going. Keep going. Keep reaching. Keep loving. Keep doing it. You got this. You got this. And for the last part of the story, we need John's account. So John chapter 6, verse 9 tells us this. There's a young boy here. So when they said, hey, where, how much food do we have? The answer was there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Five barley loaves and two fish. Effective outreach church includes the next generation. And I'm going to end on this one. Effective outreach has to even, I would believe, not just include, but have a focus on the next generation. Could have even used stronger words there. When you see this modeled with Jesus, he let the children come. He empowered young teenage disciples. He believed in raising up a next generation. There's a stat. It, was, it may not still be exactly accurate today. It came out a couple years ago. But the 80% of professed Christians 
accepted Jesus before the age of 18. There has to be an urgency and a resolve to not just reach the next generation, but actually include them. See, one of the reasons that I felt led to actually start leading a church and not just being a youth pastor was I would see so many students and young people that would graduate and they wanted to be a builder. They did not want to be a bystander. They had no desire to be a bystander. They show up and say, what do you need from me? And they're like, just sit, just watch. We cannot tell the next generation to sit and watch. They've been publishing and creating since they got their first smartphone. They've been publishing and creating. They've been telling stories and narratives. They, they, they are creative. They are minds. Oh, but I judge them. I mean, come on. Do you see the way they dress? Do you see the way? Da, 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 da? Are you judging the next generation or do you have compassion on the next generation? See, if I have compassion on them, I'm going to include them and say, hey, come in. You get to be a part of this. You get to build with us. You get to do this with us. Who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into that's a part of the next generation? Who are you including in the process? The best way to reach the next generation is to include the next generation. We have to be open to their involvement because with their involvement comes their ideas. But that's where we go back to last week. Remember, some of what we build looks different from one decade to the next because the next generation comes. They got some fresh ideas. Why? They got fresh ideas on how to effectively outreach their generation. And so, yes, at Artisan Church, if you're not a part of that next generation, we are going, the center of our bullseye, it's going to be young people, young families. That, that, is, that is going to be our aim, and we all work to do that. Why? Because I believe the future of the local church depends on it. And so much energy and resolve and urgency goes, we got to reach the young people. We got to reach it. We got to reach it. We got to discover ways to do it. We got to get creative. And every generation needs to get behind it and play their part and play their role. And every generation matters in reaching the next generation. Let me end with a verse here. I want you to stand to your feet as I read this and we close. We're going to go to Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15. Verse 13 tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot of hope in that verse, right? And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? They have to know the truth of Jesus. Not a half gospel, the full gospel. The truth has to combat the lie of this age. And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers of those who bring good news. The interesting part is this was a prophetic declaration of the prophet Isaiah who lived in a time where messengers would run on foot in sandals for miles and miles. These feet that the author here is describing as beautiful would have been torn up, used, abused, broken, calloused, bunions for days. Okay, these are some nasty feet. Toenails just hanging off. Nasty feet. Dusty, caked, nasty feet. 
how beautiful are the feet who get inconvenienced for the gospel. How beautiful are the feet who actually endure pain for the gospel message. How beautiful are the feet of those who would stand in the face of opposition in the name of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who have urgency. How beautiful are the feet of those who have compassion. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers of Jesus Christ who endure trials and persecution and slander and attacks. How beautiful are they who value outreach deeply and build it into their life. In church, we, we gotta have outreach in every facet of the ministry, but at the end of the day, hopefully this message, I'm imploring you to value this yourself. I'm trying to equip you, you can do it. You can do it, you can tell people about Jesus, you can love, you can feed, you can care, you can pray. Miracles can be done. Well, Pastor Sam, I'm just, I'm grieving right now. So is Jesus. Pastor Sam, I'm just really tired right now. I just got done traveling, working really hard. So is Jesus. So is his disciples. But Pastor Sam, I don't feel very equipped right now. Yeah, but Jesus hadn't really equipped the disciples on how to feed them. He just said, you feed them. So unfortunately, the Bible does not give us the scapegoats that we use as an excuse to not do outreach. You can't find them. You can't find those excuses in Scripture. That's the problem. So we understand we live in the self-help generation. Do what's best for me at all times. But can I tell you and remind us that's contrary to the gospel. You see, it's when we refresh others that we get refreshed. Our refreshing comes on the other side of feeding and blessing and loving everybody else. So we're going to be a church that brings streams of living water into every community surrounding our church, locally and globally. We're going to advance the cause of Christ. Amen, church.